Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking about why police walked away from a person in crisis on the Markham Bridge, the lack of reliable data tracking where our money for the homelessness tax is going, and if it's still safe to fly Boeing or even Alaska for that matter. Joining me on this week's News Roundup are Oregonian reporter Nicole Hayden and our very own executive producer, John Atariani. It's Friday, January 12th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Welcome, everyone, to the Friday News Roundup. Thanks for having us. Nicole, welcome back. Thanks for having me. If you're new here, today is the day we break down some of the biggest local stories of the week with some of the best and brightest journalists in town. But before we jump in, i like to get us started with an opening question for our guests. Let's do it. So last month, a host from one of our sister podcasts, CityCast Salt Lake, accomplished her 2023 New Year's resolution of getting a drink at every single bar in her town. She went to like 211 establishments. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? So this got us all at work talking about what would be our own city's version of that goal. Like some guy just walked every single street in Portland, which is really cool, but I think Mm -hmm. that took him longer than a year. (laughs) And I know if we wanted to replicate John uh, Salt Lake's epic bar crawl, that would take us several years, even if we were going to like one new bar every single day, because Portland has like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah, yeah. When, when they started it in Salt Lake, I actually looked at doing the similar thing in Portland and like went and saw how many bars are registered and we would die. Yeah. <laughs> Not doable <laughs> in a year. <laughs> and cirrhosis. Uh, so my question to you two is what would be your year-long Portland feat? You know, it could be food or location related. Mm-hmm. I can go first if you guys need to gather your thoughts. Uh, I would attempt to visit every free park that our city manages. I think that's actually doable. Wikipedia says that uh, we have close to 279 of them, but I think if if I just focus on the city-managed ones, it's closer to 200. So I think I can do that. I don't know if this is more realistic than the bar thing, but I would go to every four-way stop in Portland and wave everybody through that intersection (laughs) before I drove across. Do you think there's less four-way than there are bars? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just imagining the most Portland thing possible, and it's just like coming to a complete stop and being like, you go, you go. <laughs> and just annoying possibly me at that four stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like I would go to every uh, tattoo parlor in Portland because don't we have like the highest per capita? We have some very high number compared to other cities. Nicole, you would look so cool in 2025 if you did that. Oh my God, yes. What would be your first tattoo? Probably a tattoo of my dog. I did originally think, you know, thinking along the lines of what you just said, Nicole, Mm -hmm. like, oh, what are we known for? And I was like, I guess I could go to every strip bar. That was my other thought, yeah. But I mm-hmm. was like, same thing, John. I was like, one, there must be a ton. And also, I don't have that much money. Yeah. Like, I'm just not going to go there and be a bum. Very expensive hobby, yeah. <laughs> All right, on to the news of the week. 
Well, John, what's your story this week? Yeah, my my story is a police story, but a pretty unusual one. Um, On Saturday, the police went to the Markham Bridge around 2 o'clock because there was a man who had climbed over the fence on the bridge. um, And it looked like he was going to jump from the bridge. Um, Officers tried to talk to him. Um, He didn't really seem very responsive. They brought in a crisis negotiating team. Um, I mean, this went back and forth for hours. For eight hours, the police were on the bridge. It was shut down. If anybody was trying to get around Portland at that point, you probably remember the traffic jams that happened. But then, and this is a quote from Mike Benner, who's a police public information manager. He said, quote, After many hours on the scene, our team came to the conclusion that our presence was keeping him on the bridge. And then he says, at some point, the individual expressed that he would consider coming down if we left the immediate area. We decided to back off and let him walk to safety on his own. You know, we've talked a lot about police over the last couple years. And I think that this is the first story that I've heard of a positive outcome from the police just backing off from a person who's having clearly a mental health crisis. Yeah, I heard that one of the factors that led to the decision was that it started to rain and they were concerned that he would slip, like his grip would slip from the rail because it was getting cold and they would see him shivering. And it was, I I can only imagine how hard that must've been for these trained um, officers who are used to doing these types of negotiations, you know, Mm -hmm. like how hard it was to like leave this person behind. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, and you know, I will, be clear, it's not like they just like, we're like, well, we're going back to the station. They did sort of pull way back and and keep an eye from a distance. Um, But yeah, I mean, to me, this just like raises a lot of interesting questions about police and use of force and, you know, police involvement in mental health crises, right? Because we've seen a number of horror stories of police engaging people who are in mental health crises over the last Mm. several years. You know, people who weren't posing a threat, really. And because of escalating the issue, uh, people ended up getting killed. And, you know, this is sort of a counterpoint to that of what can happen with policing when they're just really deliberate about de-escalating a situation as opposed to escalating. Yeah, I think this is also brings up a good point of, you know, the person in crisis usually knows what they need and kind of listening and trusting. And that's what a big thing that Portland Street response, which is an alternative to police uh, for folks who are in mental health crisis. Oftentimes when they respond, they just, you know, listen, sit there, ask what people need. And maybe it's what they need is much simpler than we think. Um, so, yeah, that's a great example of police taking on those same kind of practices. Yeah, yeah. I when I was reading about this story, I was like, this seems like a perfect thing for Portland Street Response to respond to. This is like why they exist, mm-hmm. right? And I, so I read into it, and it, it turns out there is a, a good reason why they didn't. Um, there's a couple carve outs of places they won't get involved. Uh, that's when a person is in traffic or obstructing traffic, they don't get involved. Yeah, because they would have to clear traffic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they did. They cleared traffic to make things quieter. To to make sure, you know, if anything terrible happened, it didn't include other people. Yeah. And and on adjoining areas as well. So this was on the Markham. I had a friend who was on the Max trying to cross over the Tillamook Crossing and his train got 
delayed oh, as well. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. actually a fellow journalist who then wrote into the city and was like, why are we stopping traffic on the Tillamook Crossing when the issue is on the Markham Bridge? And the, you know, the city had a great reason. It was because of routing of buses that would like then sort of be in the same area. But uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of caution. Uh, was taken place. I mean, something else that was interesting here was the question of a mental health hold, right? Like the police have the right to, uh, you know, it's called a civil commitment when they think that there's somebody who's in like a serious mental health crisis of uh, being a threat to themselves or others. They have the right to detain the person. And the police opted not to do that in this case, too. There isn't a lot of information on why that didn't happen, but like considering what appears to be the subtlety that this situation was dealt with, I imagine they just made an evaluation that whoever this person was just needed to sort of, you know, chill out. You know, I when I read that, I was a little concerned. I'm not saying they should have held this person, but now I'm hoping this person does get the help and support they need because it makes me so sad to think he's just walking around and wasn't connected to any kind of help or services. Mm-hmm. And what's what's going to keep him from doing this again? But, like, who's to say that the help that a person in this situation needs is being detained by the police, you know? like. Well, I'm not saying that. For sure. I'm saying yeah. getting connected to mental health services. Oh, absolutely. Because I'm assuming that's what um, tends to happen afterwards. You know, it's they're connected to services. I don't think they're just put... Are they put in a psychiatric hold now? I'm just wondering if, like, all people just put immediately in a psychiatric hold. Yeah, when an officer decides to uh, issue a hold, then they're taken to the emergency room for evaluation, and they can be held up to 72 hours. And, yeah, unfortunately, since it's so hard to access mental health services just as the average person, things like that are make it easier for people to get immediate a temporary care than, you know, trying to walk in someplace yourself and ask. So they don't really have the tools in their toolbox to do the thing that everybody else would be like, well, that just seems like a very logical step is yeah. to set them up with counselors or, right. hey, here's some free therapy or like here, talk to someone right now, you know, yeah. exactly. and they're just like, all we can do is hold them for 72 hours. And I think this is going to aggravate this situation. I mean, that good play on them, but yeah. like so sad that this person doesn't have services. And it totally dovetails back through so many things that we talk about all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like the sort of infighting over leadership of Portland Street response, the sort of availability mm-hmm. of mental health and recovery beds and all of these things in the city. It's yeah. like, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a simple story, but then once you scratch right beneath, beneath the surface, you can just see all the ways that all of these challenges are like deeply interconnected. Definitely. Well, John, thank you so much for that story. Yeah, no problem. Nicole, you're sharing one of the stories you reported on this week, right? Concerning the homelessness tax. Tell us about it. Yeah. So um, we got a report this week from the Metro Auditor's Office to kind of not review so much um, how much progress we've made, but to review how we review that progress. Mm -hmm. As a reminder, this tax is for Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties. And it found that all three counties were tracking numbers differently, so it was hard to compare them. It also found that we could do better on understanding what our success truly was. We track how many people were housed from the tax, but we don't Um, follow up to see um, how long those people have been housed. 
So to really know the success of it, we have to check in and see if those people are still housed a year later, two years later, um, because part of housing someone is providing supports. And if we fail at that, um, it's really hard for folks to make that transition because uh, they're usually quite alone doing all these new things. Um, with some good news, since the tax launched, um, officials across all three counties have tracked 5,776 people who have been housed, and they prevented over 18,000 people from becoming homeless through eviction prevention. So um, there has been a significant impact from the inflow of this money, but to make sure that that impact is long-term, this report essentially just said we need to do better at um, how we track the numbers. Yeah, something I, I saw in your article was I guess the quote that summed it all up for me in a sense, which was uh, Metro Chief Operating Officer Marissa Madrigal, she wrote, many of the challenges that the Metro Homelessness Tax Program faces can be traced back to the design, basically, of of our government, of our system, of how it's, it, you know, a lot. I don't think a lot of people understand that our city government is not just, you know, the city mm -hmm. of, of Portland, it, it's Metro, it's the county, and all three are managing really big chunks of our mm -hmm. civic life. And so when when things like this where everyone has to work together, stuff falls through the cracks. Right. When we're kind of looking at this from um, a bird's eye view, when we're trying to quickly enact positive change like this and with this new whole system, um, it is like pretty hard to build a whole tracking system from scratch when you have, like you mentioned, all these different government sector. So I don't think this is necessarily a failure, but maybe just a learning point on how to collaborate better. Yeah. I mean, you know, tracking things is important. That's how we know that we're actually mm -hmm. succeeding. And like, I hate doing paperwork. I totally understand that it takes a long time to get these systems up and running. But like, is it conceivable that they're doing a really great job, but just not writing it down? Like, is it possible that like everything is like bang up working and the tracking just isn't in place to show the successes? That is very possible. I wrote another story this past week about the city not tracking their success, um, which is a bit silly because uh, we know they're doing good work. Um, so it seems like that's a good bragging point for them to track those numbers. But so that story showed that when the city opened these new mass encampment sites that have um, like 140 tiny homes, and then they opened a bunch of new safe rest villages in the past year, which also have tiny homes. And the idea was that when they do sweeps um, to offer people uh, placements there, uh, because we know that people don't feel comfortable in these uh, typical congregate shelters. So we saw last year the number of sweeps double from um, 2022, and yet the number of people sheltered stayed the same. And that's because they only tracked the number of people going into these congregate shelters where people sleep side by side on cots. They did not track how many people went into these new, more popular places, which would have showed good success on their part. Because since this is the open, the, the mass shelter site, they house 70 people. And that's a really big deal. 
Yeah. So essentially, this is more of a failure of documentation. And it, it just brings up questions of like, well, are they doing a good job? Right. right. Um, so I understand because it's our money. We want to know where the money's going. Mm-hmm. We want to we yeah. want to see those numbers. Yeah, For sure. So do you uh, my fo- a follow up question to my earlier point? Do you think the city charter reform will at all alleviate any of this complexity? Or is the county metro city form of government like something else we should consider reforming? Like, so are those the next steps? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like um, this issue is not necessarily a city reform issue, but more of a how do we streamline these different agencies? They're each their own government and historically have each tracked data in different ways and different systems. And I think the challenge in this next year is to collaborate and have one shared data system. And I think no matter what the form of government looks like, you can achieve that if you just yeah get your ducks in a row. I mean, I, I do think that it's kind of relieving, though. We've spent so much time talking about homelessness issues on the city and um, that the problem that we're facing right now isn't that we're not doing the work. It's just that we're not that we're doing the work so quickly. We're not doing a good job writing it down. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I, I feel kind of good about that. Yeah, definitely. It's a good thing. We've housed a lot of people this year for sure. Nicole, thank you so much for that story. Thank you for having me. All right, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we return, more news of the week. Okay, guys, so my story this week is me spiraling into my own anxiety around flying because I'm a really (laughs) nervous flyer. I pretty much hate it. Um, I will say, Claudia, yeah. when I saw the Alaska story, you were one of the first people I How did of. you know? <laughs> because you've talked about your flying anxiety several times, and I'm like, oh, this is probably really freaking Claudia out. Yeah, and that's like, okay, so when I heard about that, of course, you know, that's like, that's my airline. Yeah. I have a credit card <laughs> that's just connected to that airline, you know? Um, that is the state I visit the most. It was going to California. And flying out of PDX, like, that's insane. <laughs> you know, that was too, I was like, that could have been me. Um, so I knew the only thing that would make my chest untighten was to just, you know, dive into research. Like, all the whys and hows, because mm-hmm. that tends to make me feel better. I don't know if that helps you guys, but I'm just like, well, why? Or how? Or Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it's like, <laughs> oh, this is even worse than I thought. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> is that where we're going? <laughs> well, thank you for that transition. So today I'll be taking a closer look into what happened last Friday uh, with, the, with that fuselage panel, but also the general decline of quality at Boeing, because this isn't the first time Boeing's 737 MAX line has had issues. Uh, you might remember the two deadly crashes that were only five months apart in 2018 and 2019 and it killed a total of 346 people. Um, And I feel like because one occurred in Indonesia and the other in Ethiopia, it came and went with a news cycle after the Congress hearings because there were Congress hearings. Mm -hmm. Um, But both those planes that crashed were brand new, Boeing 737 MAX 8, which is just like one generation before um, this brand new plane that Alaska flew last Friday, which is a Boeing 737 MAX 9. It was only certified to fly in October, so it hadn't been in the Alaska fleet long, been a few months. But in all fairness, Alaska is also being blamed for the accident because before that uh, door plug fell off, 
Alaska had already restricted that plane to terrain-only flights, meaning it couldn't fly over water because warnings from a cabin pressurization system kept going off on three different flights prior to the one on Friday. Mm. Alaska thought it was like, it's probably nothing. It's a brand new plane. But if something does go wrong, it'll be easier to head back to an airport on land than like while we're heading to Hawaii. So the FAA is supposedly also looking into Alaska safety practices because they're like, make that make sense, guys. <laughs> you know, like you're just like not safe enough to fly over water, but over cities and people. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So any thoughts before I jump into the shit show that is now Boeing? I mean, the only thing that I think like a lot of people, I was like, well, maybe this is an isolated incident. Maybe this is just a freak occurrence. And then we saw both Alaska and United saying that they found more loose hardware in other parts of planes. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) There goes that like potential silver lining. It also made me feel like, um, does the Pacific Northwest have an unlucky track record with flights since we also just recently saw the pilot um, yes. with the mental health crisis. So extra worry was <sighs> going off in my head. <laughs> more fuel, more fuel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So John, what you stated is exactly what made me want to dig a little deeper because mm-hmm. again, this isn't the first time that Boeing has had dings in their craftsmanship, in their safety in the past 20 years. Uh, so when United and Alaska were both just like, by the way, just so you know, United owns the most Boeing planes. Alaska only flies Boeing. So the reason this is a big deal is basically if you're flying a direct flight at a PDX, it's a Boeing because it's the Northwest. That's that's our even though it's no longer really based here, it's still like a legacy brand, you know? So th- that really weirded me out. Delta. Delta's still out there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, I don't got Delta money. Anyhow, <laughs> I'm basing everything I'm sharing uh, on articles I read from The Oregonian, CNN, NBC, ABC, some trade magazines, Wikipedia, and a highly recommended documentary I implore everyone to watch called Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. It's on Netflix. Claudia, did you sleep last night? <laughs> no. <laughs> I haven't slept since Friday. <laughs> Thank you for asking. (laughs) So (laughs) Boeing represents the best of America to like a lot of old timers. The name still carries weight because it has an incredible legacy of quality and world-class engineering and craftsmanship. You know, there used to be a saying, you guys, there's even shirts still available. If it's not a Boeing, I'm not going. And that's because Boeing was a company built by engineers, not businessmen. Like the people who originally created it were the people who were making those planes. And that hierarchy at Boeing, when it was still a Seattle-based company, was nerds on top. So like all good engineers, they fostered a culture of finding problems, which is a good thing. That's what you want. They want to know if like something isn't working, if it could get done better. And they prided themselves in not cutting any corners. Older workers uh, say their production mantra used to be, it doesn't matter the cost, just do it right. And how wholesome is that? Remember good products, you guys? (laughs) Too young. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, that all changed in 1996 when Boeing bought their biggest competitor, McDonnell Douglas. Now, McDonnell Douglas was on its way to bankruptcy, but somehow their C-suite, who basically led their own company into the ground, ended up taking over the C-suite of Boeing. So they became the new CEO of the company that bought them. And so it became this industry joke that uh, McDonnell Douglas actually bought Boeing with their own money. Uh, And immediately the culture changed. 
like no more finding problems. People were demoted or fired if they brought up issues. Manufacturing of parts was no longer done internally. Uh, the headquarters moved from Seattle to Chicago, which was huge. It was a big blow for Seattle. And it was public knowledge that they did that to get away from the engineers. Mm -hmm. The new C-suite wanted to focus on making profits, and the nerds were bringing them down with like quality issues and pushbacks of timelines. So what ended up happening was Boeing's highly trained and skilled workforce was either let go or they quit. And all these parts were now contracted with the cheapest suppliers they could possibly find. And those suppliers were also pinched and squeezed every which way. Some of Boeing's suppliers say they feel like their relationship is one of indentured servitude, which is dramatic, but it does paint a picture. And just an added note, that manufacturer of the Alaskan airline door plug that detached midair was the subject of a class action lawsuit last year that alleged widespread quality uh, failures. They were actually caught falsifying QC documents. So anyhow, this new McDonnell Douglas CEO basically told all its workers, uh, or all the old Boeing workers, what was left of them, to stop acting like a family. This is like true. This is in a memo. Stop acting like a family and start acting more like a team. Find ways to save money and to build faster. And if they couldn't, they were let go. Also, they themselves started falsifying QC records. They would no longer get their managers to come look because there were no freaking managers to come look. They would each other just be like, hey, can you just tell, can you just write that this is good? Okay, it's good. So <laughs> imagine every new worker that would come in would just get trained by the last worker that had only started a few months ago. And since all the legacy engineers and, and builders, like I said, were fired or quit, the quality just kept dipping. And airlines were reporting that new airplanes were being delivered with workers' tools and sandwiches still left on the plane. Like, that's how fast they were making these guys, you know? And more disturbing, metal shavings were found on wires, which could easily, like, short-circuit a plane and bring it down. And someone even reported finding a worker's ladder inside a compartment in the tail that would have totally jammed up the rudder in a flight and also cause a crash. Like, that... All that stuff reported to the FAA, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And also, because there were barely any engineers left, they just stopped making new planes, like new designs. The 737 MAX, y'all, that the plane that flew out of PDX, that's based on a model that's over 40 years old. So they just keep making the engines bigger, but it's the basic design of this really old and outdated plane. And even more disturbing, they were building these crucial sensors that help keep the plane oriented with single points of failure. Hmm. And a good engineering practice is to have multiple points of failure because you always have to assume that's going to fail. Does that make sense? Yeah. I guess my question for you now is how will you get to California? Like weeks long <laughs> bicycling or trains? I am driving. No, dude, I am driving. Amtrak. Yeah. Well, something that, that I saw, I was sort of looking into this and um, there was a great article from Politico and I love the headline, Congress spoiling for a Boeing investigation. Congress is just like getting ready for a fight. No. But they had this quote, Despite concerns, some lawmakers among the country's most frequent flyers don't seem reluctant to fly. Then we got a quote from Oregon Senator Ron Wyden. Here's what Ron has to say about <laughs> yeah. the whole deal. Quote, my middle name is 17C because that's a seat with some legroom, Wyden says. So I know this inside out. 
uh, that he says that Boeing certainly needs better oversight. Um, and he says that those problems probably could have, with better oversight, been rooted out ahead of time. So, you think so? So, so Ronnie, is, <laughs> Ronnie is still a, a Portland flying PDX booster. Boo, for sure. Ronnie. Okay, <laughs> let me just tell you what's going on also. they Since they're refusing to invest in better technology, what they did was built software wonky software to compensate for these hardware design issues, which is a huge engineering no-no. You can't fix hardware mm -hmm. issues with software because that's crazy stupid. So that's exactly what happened in 2018 when those two planes went down. It was software that kicked in that basically pointed the nose down. Wow. I wish I could go deeper about how much Boeing lied and gaslit the family of those victims and the affected airlines and Congress, which fun fact, just to like, I know I was like, boo, Ronnie. Um, the only reason these hearings happened, like back in 2019, was because of retired Oregon Congressman Peter DeFazio. Because mm -hmm. the FAA was ready to shrug it off again. But I know I got to wrap this up. So all I'll say is that supposedly Boeing had turned a new leaf um, after these deadly crashes because they fired the CEO who was leading them during that time and hired their current CEO, Dave Calhoun. And he says he's all about safety and accountability. But this most recent incident where one of their brand new planes is literally falling apart in midair makes me want to say, if it's a Boeing, I'm not going. And Nicole, I am definitely going to like Amtrak drive. Is this, is this Claudio's marketing background coming out? <laughs> it's a Boeing. I'm not going. Because we're, if it's an Airbus, come with us. Oh my God. Beautiful. Because no, seriously, guys, we're playing a numbers game with a potentially disastrous outcome. Like we have it. And especially PDX. Mm -hmm. where we have the concentration of the most Boeing planes. So Boeing has yet to be truly held accountable for all of its FAA violations uh, by our government. They just pay fines and skirt any real criminal charges. And they were found criminally like liable for all of those deaths in 2018 and 2019. So they're free to build cheaper and cheaper planes. So to me, it's interesting, though, because I am not saying that like Boeing is a like magical stellar company that like everything they do is great. Like for sure, there's concerns about Boeing and the way that they operate. But I did see that the National Transportation Safety Board chair uh, basically try, you know, from the reporting that I saw, said that they were discounting the likelihood of negligence by the airline, by Boeing itself, and focusing on the manufacture and installation of the door plug. So it sounds like, you know, what Jennifer uh, Hamandy is saying is that they're really looking at Spirit Aero Systems. That's the company that makes the door yeah. plug, you know, mm -hmm. which I think that ultimately Boeing is responsible for the safety yes. of their planes. <laughs> but, but like, you know, to me, this just like brings up, I don't know, all of these questions about, you know, when we have these sort of catastrophic failures in like like really complex systems backed by major corporations that have like billions of dollars on the line that I think we're just going to see many months of finger pointing among uh, Congress and Boeing and suppliers and everybody's just going to be mm -hmm. going to be fighting, lots of fighting to come. Well, it's not just Wall Street. It's congressmen themselves have money in Boeing. I looked it up. And there's like over 20 Congress people. Yeah. They have vested interests. I actually looked, John, because when I saw that Ron Wyden quote, I was like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> Does Ronnie have Boeing money? <laughs> I mean, according to the internet, no, but we, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not saying he does, you guys. I'm just saying I don't know. <laughs> Hearing what I've told you, John, would you just like jump on another Boeing plane without caring? You're just like, yeah, that's cool. I've got two flights booked on Alaska Airlines coming up in the next couple of months. 
So yeah, absolutely. I feel like this is potentially the safest time to fly on an airline like this because they are on high, high, high alert. Every single mm-hmm. plane is being mm-hmm. combed over with a fine tooth comb and a microscope to make sure that they're safe. So, you know, if if I'm wrong about that, that will be the blackest of black comedies. But yeah, I'll jump back on a Boeing plane for sure. Yeah, I guess the rate, if you compare this one flight to the number of Boeing flights that happen per day, the risk is pretty low, but it's still concerning and makes you have nightmares in the meantime. Mm-hmm. There was this situation in the 90s where like four uh, explorers mm-hmm. were just getting into like horrible rollover crashes, like like hundreds of people died. And it was because Firestone, the tires were like separating at like high speeds. They would just like fall apart. And then like the explorers would have this rollover accident. And it was like years of Firestone blaming Ford and Ford blaming Firestone for these accidents. Like 200 people died, 500 were injured. Yeah, it was. And that was just in the U.S. It was like a global problem. Mm -hmm. When you ask if I'm worried, it's like, no, I am like very accustomed coming from Detroit to like (laughs) horrible, like corporate, you know, greed decisions leading to like transportation disasters. Yeah. I don't know, guys. (laughs) Just the harbinger of like. Claudia's like, I watched the documentary. You guys, you guys don't know. I don't know, know guys. <laughs> it sounds like you just have like uh, more level headed uh, tendencies than I do. And, you know, good for you guys. But, but me, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that anymore. Like, I'm just like done. Because I just don't feel like our government is doing their part in regulating these airlines. And I don't trust Boeing anymore. Maybe we can maybe we can leverage this to be the push to the expansion of Amtrak and like high speed yeah, rail that people have been talking about. That would be forever. amazing. Wouldn't that be great? But yeah. you know what would happen if like it was businessmen that started that? Because not like Amtrak <laughs> trains ever derail in the Pacific no. Northwest. No, that it's just another happened. another way that hasn't happened in at least three or four years. Yeah, <laughs> let's just find all the ways Claudia can die visiting her family. <laughs> Sounds like they got to come to you. <laughs> Cool. Well, you guys, I appreciate you um, being part of my therapy. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me today and sharing those awesome stories. Uh, Nicole, thank you for your reporting. Thank you. Always a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Claudia. Well, before we wrap up, I just wanted to make a quick correction. I stated that Alaska only flies Boeings, but they have one more model they use on their shorter flights, which is an E-Jet It's Embraer, made by General Electric. Also, for the second time in five days, an Alaska Airlines flight had to make an unplanned landing at PDX. This Tuesday, crew reported communication issues on a flight traveling from Seattle to Honolulu. Officials said the plane landed safely around 12.30 p.m. and that the FAA is investigating. Thanks to YourOregonNews.com for reporting on it. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thank you so much for listening. Our executive producer is John Atariani. Our producer is Julia Fiaioni. Our newsletter editor is Rachel Monahan, And our host is me, Claudia Meza. Original music by Jenny Conley and Stephen Drizos. Additional music by Epidemic Sound and All the Kimonos. We'll be back Monday morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slims. Mm-hmm.